Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. On December 9th, 1981, journalist and Black Panther Party member Mamiya Abu-Jamal was arrested for the alleged killing of policeman Daniel Faulkner in Philadelphia. In spite of surmounting evidence to the contrary, in 1982, he was convicted for wrongful death of Faulkner. And Mamiya spent the next 28 and a half years in solitary confinement awaiting the death penalty. As a result of a national and global campaign to free Mamiya, in 2011, Mamiya was removed from solitary confinement and from death row, but continues to serve a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Today on Sojourner Truth, we bring you voices from a press conference on the case of Mamiya Abu-Jamal and the recent amicus brief in his case filed by the UN Working Group on People of African Descent. The international body observes that racial bias has tainted the judicial process up to now, citing new evidence of innocence and misconduct by judges and prosecutors. Mamiya Abu-Jamal's lawyers say evidence in boxes discovered in the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office by the new Philadelphia DA, Larry Krasner, who in 2019 showed that his trial was tainted by judicial bias and police and prosecutorial misconduct, including withholding of evidence and also basically what amounted to bribing witnesses to lie. As of the airing of this show, the plea for a new trial in the case of Mamiya Abu-Jamal went before the Philadelphia Common Pleas Court Judge Lucretia Clemens on Friday, December 16th. The court was packed with majority black and other people of color and also other supporters. Judge Clemens asked the Commonwealth if they would confirm that there is no new evidence in the 32 boxes that relate to the claims of new evidence and racism in jury selection. This is known as the Brady and Bateson claims. The Commonwealth, however, didn't confirm. So Judge Clemens suggested that Mumia's lawyers make arrangements to see those boxes. The judge said she would be making her ruling in 60 to 90 days. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Russia is accusing the U.S. of waging a proxy war against it after Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit and address to Congress last night where he lobbied for continued support in fending off Russia's war in Ukraine. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. 
President Joe Biden announced more than a billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine earlier in the day during a press conference with Zelensky. 1,000 religious leaders and peace activists are calling for a Christmas truce in Ukraine. They said in a written and video statement the demand is inspired by a Christmas truce that occurred during World War I along the western front between German and British troops. We urge our government to take a leadership role in ending the war in Ukraine by calling for a ceasefire before the growing crisis and global hunger and poverty worsens and before the conflict results in a nuclear war that could devastate the world's ecosystems and annihilate and annihilate and annihilate all of God's all of God's all of God's creation 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 the signatories say the way out of war in Ukraine will not be a military solution. They say they believe a temporary ceasefire could be the first step towards a negotiated peace. In the U.S., the Biden administration is moving to make more prescription medicine available amidst a trifecta of COVID-19, influenza, and RSV infections, dipping into the nation's stockpile to do so. Sagar Magani reports. This year's flu season has hit early and hard. Probably the worst flu uh, outbreak we've seen in a decade. White House COVID-19 response chief Dr. Ashish Jha said last week there's a lot of flu out there, and in some cases, not enough medicine after a spike in RSV cases. Some people are having trouble finding over-the-counter medicine, particularly for kids. The FDA says the antibiotic amoxicillin is also in short supply due to high demand. The administration's releasing doses of Tamiflu from the strategic national stockpile. States will be able to to ask for them from the Health and Human Services Department, which last week announced it would let states dip into their own Tamiflu stocks. Sagar Magani, Washington. Temperatures are plunging across the U.S. far and fast as a massive winter storm forms ahead of the Christmas weekend. The system's promising heavy snow, ice, flooding, and powerful winds across a broad swath of the U.S. The National Weather Service reports temperatures across the central high plains plummeted 50 degrees Fahrenheit in just a few hours. In much of the country, the weekend could be the coldest in decades. The Weather Service says the storm is so large and encompassing about 190 million people were under some sort of winter weather advisory. Montana and Wyoming are likely the coldest with below 30 degree temperatures. Nearly 107,000 Americans died of drug overdoses last year, according to final figures released today at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's 16 percent higher than the nearly 92,000 overdose deaths in 2020. The cryptocurrency entrepreneur Sam Bankman-Fried is expected to make his initial U.S. court appearance today on charges he swindled investors and looted customer deposits on his FTX trading platform. Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas last week week and was flown to New York late yesterday after not fighting his extradition. While he was in the air, the U.S. attorney in Manhattan announced two of his closest business associates had also been charged and secretly pled guilty. Homeless advocates, city officials, and religious leaders across the country gathered as part of the National Homeless Memorial, a day to remember those who have died while living on the streets yesterday. Communities across the country staged events to commemorate the day from Washington, D.C. to California. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. And now we turn to the continuing fight to free political prisoner and journalist Mamiya Abu-Jamal. A press conference held on December 13th included moderator 
Johanna Fernandez. She is an associate professor who has researched Mumia's case at length and is executive producer of the film Justice on Trial, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Ms. Fernandez is presently associate professor of history at Baruch College in the City University of New York. Also, the Honorable Wendell Griffin, state court trial judge in the Sixth Judicial Circuit of Arkansas. Dr. Vijay Prashad, executive director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research in Buenos Aires, Johannesburg, New Delhi, and Sao Paulo. Julia Wright, founder of the Mia Abu-Jamal Health Committee and board of the Richard Wright Civil Rights Center in Elaine, Arkansas. Lynn Washington Jr., a Philadelphia-based investigative reporter who has covered Mumia's case since his arrest on the morning of December 9, 1981 as well as Mumia's grandson, Jamal Jr. Let's go to hear their voices now. Thank you everybody for joining this press conference. Our matter this morning is the notice given by the United Nations Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent. The United Nations Working Group on Experts of People of African Descent filed an amicus brief on behalf of Mumia Abu-Jamal on December 6, 2022. The brief calls the Abu-Jamal case, quote, emblematic of the problems of racial discrimination faced by people of African descent living in the diaspora, unquote. Its objective is to contribute, quote, to the analysis of systemic racism vis-a-vis the criminal justice system, unquote. Mumia Bujamal is the imprisoned radio journalist and veteran Black Panther who was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death for killing white police officer Daniel Faulkner in Philadelphia. My name is Johanna Fernandez. I'm Associate Professor of History at Baruch College of the City University of New York. I'm the writer and executive producer of the film Justice on Trial, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. We will first hear from Julia Wright, who's the daughter of author Richard Wright. She's the founder of the Mumia Abu-Jamal Health Committee. This amicus brief is already a milestone abolitionist document because it has historical connections. The first connection is Mumia. Mumia Abu-Jamal is already part of our Black history, not only because of the textbook case aspect of his ordeal, not only because there are two streets in France named after him, not only because as Lynn Washington puts it, he is a Black journalist behind bars who has written more than 95% articles compared to journalists outside and in America. Not only because he is one of our best Black writers and historians, but simply because he is beloved by the voiceless. George Floyd and how he died, Russell Maroon Schultz and how he died. George Floyd's last breath went around the world 
and the worldwide protests that ensued shook the United Nations to the core. After hearing the narrative of George Floyd's brother, all 54 African states, members of the United Nations, wrote a letter of solidarity to us in our collective mourning and requested a UN investigation into law enforcement on U.S. soil. Mumia writes that their attempts, quote, gave hope to those living on the brink in U.S. ghettos and prisons on death rows and beyond. So I believe this brief is inspired by the last breath of George Floyd and the global South's response to it. It is also inspired by the realization that Mumia's frame-up took place in a world where police narratives still held sway before Eric Garner and George Floyd. Today, in a post-George Floyd and a post-Uvalde world, police narratives are in the dock. I knew we needed a Mumia Health Committee, and so I gathered a group of activists to work to stop the triage, unite with other political prisoners' health committees with a collective voice to interface with the community at large, with impacted families, with NGOs, and with the UN. Our message our elderly, comorbid prisoners, primarily the political ones, are subjected to a death by incarceration that is torture. So I believe the Samikis founded on the immediacy with which it was written by the working group of experts on peoples of African descent, the absence of red tape involved, the deep listening on their part and their ability to go to the roots of the case, it is the result of their recognition that racism is a crime against humanity that cannot be time barred, that state and court decisions should be continuously reinterrogated in the, in the light of the slavery old harms of systemic racism, that evidence of racial bias, even decades old, has no expiry date, and that Mumia's case is the tip of a very dangerous white supremacist iceberg. Thank you, Julia. We'll next hear from Dr. Vijay Prashad, Executive Director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, the Director of the Tricontinental, which is an institute for social research, and it has offices in Buenos Aires, Johannesburg, New Delhi, and Sao Paulo. Vijay. It's great to be here. Obviously, I would prefer if I was in person with Mumia Abu Jamal walking freely in the streets of Philadelphia, that would be the best case scenario. Close to that, but not exactly, is the fact that the United Nations has finally weighed in with this important amicus brief. You know, for a very long time, the United States of America has lectured the planet 
about human rights and democracy. It's made it a habit, in fact, of sanctioning countries that it claims are not democratic up to a certain democratic standard and so on. Over 30 countries, by the way, are under U.S. unilateral and therefore illegal sanctions. They're illegal because they're not authorized by the United Nations. The United Nations is a body that comprises 193 countries who are treaty bound to follow the UN Charter of 1945. The UN Charter is the greatest compromise document on the planet because 193 countries are treaty bound by that charter and yet the charter is violated routinely. That's the reason why a number of important people from the United States submitted a text called We Charge Genocide in 1948 about the systematic attack at people of African descent inside the United States. This has a long history, this history of appealing to the United Nations. And finally, in a way, the United Nations has answered not only to the case of Mumia Abu Jamal, but in fact, in a small way, to the great text called We Charge Genocide from 1948. Where does one even begin on this story? The numbers say it all. United States is well known to be the world's largest per capita incarcerator of human beings. Two million people. That's a fact. What is there to say? Do we need to talk about the disproportionality with which people of African descent and people of Latin American descent and so on disproportionately incarcerated? Do we need to get into that by a long shot disproportionately incarcerated. The numbers, in fact, say it all. Obscene numbers of people killed every year by the police departments of the United States. I mean, a thousand people a year is the official statistic. That's about three people a day almost. Here, close look at those statistics done by the Washington Post, a venerable institution of the United States. It shows disproportionate killing of people of African descent people of Latin American descent and so on, the numbers say it all. What do we have to contribute to that? It's right there on the record. It's about time somebody took those numbers seriously. Well, the people in the United States know those numbers. Punctual protests every few years on the streets for this or that killing of one individual who exemplifies the killing of thousands of people. It was Michael Brown in 2014 in Ferguson, a cycle of protest starts against police violence. And then just a few years later, the killing of George Floyd in 2020, the Black Lives Matter movement starts. Black Lives Matter, an important slogan. Almost 26 million people in the United States take to the streets. That's the largest mass demonstration in US history in some ways forgotten. And I remember those protests. I remember seeing photographs in the midst of those protests, Black Lives Matter. There were signs which said free Mumia. Free Mumia said the protesters in the Black Lives Matter protests around the horrendous killing of a man named George Floyd. Free Mumia. What did Mumia Jam Abu Jamal have to do with this? His is in fact an individual case 41 years incarcerated. What does it have to do with something in 2020? Well, everything. In one respect, the slogan Free Mumia is a slogan that, as the United Nations recognizes, is about the person, Mumia Abu Jamal, unjustly sitting in a prison for 41 years. In most countries, a life sentence 
is about 10 to 25 years. Most countries, civilized countries in the world do not hold people to what in the United States is known the length of their natural life. That is inhumane. That's a human rights violation. Most countries, when people are sentenced to life, it's understood to be 10 years and then parole or 25 years. 41 years, that's an atrocity. And the United Nations has recognized that. Free Mumia, it means free Mumia. But free Mumia also means something else. Because of the great compassion of Mumia Abu Jamal, he has become a symbol not only of his own case, but of the case of systematic racism in the United States. Systematic racism, that phrase which one hears even from people in power in the United States. It means racism has corroded the entire system. The system lives on the basis of racism. That's what the system is. The system requires changing. A system of systematic racism lecturing the world about human rights and democracy? Stop. Look to yourself. Look to your own problems. Take seriously what the United Nations has said about the case of Mumia Abu Jamal. Free Mumia. That's about Mumia Abu Jamal, the individual. Free Mumia. That's about a system that is rotten and that is desperately crying out cycle after cycle of protests. Black Lives Matter. Stop the violence. Stop police violence. Thank you, Vijay. I think it's important to underscore that what the UN brief suggests is that there are echoes of the past, of the country's racist past in the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. It shocks the conscience that in the post-George Floyd world, Abu-Jamal has for 41 years been refused relief in the courts. Mumia was beaten within an inch of his life by police officers after having been shot uh, in the stomach by Officer Faulkner. This is something that is forgotten about this case. The prosecutor, Joe McGill, bribed a testimony out of star witness Robert Chobert, who was driving with two DWIs, no license, and had been previously convicted of throwing a Molotov cocktail into a schoolyard. This is the new evidence that has emerged. A handwritten letter penned by the star witness, Robert Chobert, asking, where is my money? The judge who presided over the case um, initially, Judge Albert Sabo, was overheard by a court stenographer say, quote, I'm going to help them fry the nigger, referring to how he was going to instruct the jury. The only thing Mumia is guilty of is having survived an encounter with the infamously brutal and corrupt Philadelphia police of the late 1970s and 1980s. And this police department was under investigation at the time by the Department of Justice for brutality, corruption, and tampering with evidence to obtain convictions. In fact, that term shocks the conscience is in the documents produced by the DOJ about the Philadelphia police. They said that the level of brutality and homicidal violence of the Philadelphia Police Department and its tampering with evidence to obtain convictions shocks the conscience. And we are here today again to talk about the echoes of the racist past in Mumia's case. 
And next, we'll hear from Lynn Washington Jr., who's a Philadelphia-based investigative reporter who has covered the Mumia Abu-Jamal matter since Abu-Jamal's arrest on the morning of December 9th, 1981. Thank you, Dr. Fernandez. The UN brief speaks very eloquently and quite instructively on the historic and deep-seated nature of racism in the U.S. criminal justice system, as well as the civil justice system. One of the things that's been, I would argue, most overlooked in this case, there's been a lot of focus, and rightfully, on the improprieties of police and prosecutors, but very little on the judges that have handled this. Judges in this case have whitewashed the racism that has been extraordinarily evident since the actual beating of Abu Jamal on December 9th, 1981 by police that happened even before he was formally arrested. The honorable jurist that you'll hear from this morning is from Little Rock, Arkansas. And the very first African-American judge that was elected to a judgeship in the United States took place in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1873. That man's name was Mifflin Gibbs. He was a Philadelphia native. And again, talking about the brief, it talks about the deep-seated and historic nature of racism in the United States, including other courts. And Mr. Gibbs, before he became a judge, when he was an activist and successful entrepreneur in California, protested against a practice in California that barred African-Americans from being able to testify in courts against whites. So when we talk about the effect that the courts have had on Black people, Say in California, somebody's land was stolen, a Black person's land was stolen. They couldn't even go into court and articulate it unless a white person was there vouching for them. That just shows you the long arc of racism in the U.S. criminal justice system. I would like to just reference the item mark number 35 in the U.N. brief. And they talk about the judge, the trial judge in the case, the late uh, Albert Sabo. And he was specifically quoted as saying he was going to help them fry the N-word. Now, well, many people react to the use of that odious phrase, the N-word. And I think we should really start using that phrase because putting it in the context of the N-word really dissipates some of its impact. But the worst aspect of this was the judge openly saying that he was going to help prosecutors convict this man. He would do whatever he can, bend or break the law to make sure that this person was convicted. That goes to the core of an unfair trial and shows gross partiality from the judge, which violates a judge's duty to impartiality, which is in the code of conduct for judges in Pennsylvania. When we look at the 1982 trial, this judge who promised to help prosecutors fry the N-word, fry Mumia. He stripped Mumia of his right to represent himself. He stripped him from being able to finish the jury selection. There was a lot of things that the judge did overtly and covertly to help prosecutors, dismissing jurors when he allowed other jurors to have the same sort of relief that he dismissed was asked, blocking certain testimony coming in. The judge threw the trial. Now, when that judge's bias was an issue in Mumia's appeals in the mid-90s, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court allowed the judge 
to continue to stay on the case. A classic and obvious example of the fox being put in charge of the hen house. Sable's bias in that 1995 hearing was so extraordinary that reporters from around the world, from Philadelphia to Florida, from New York to LA to London to Japan, criticized the ruling. The actions of Sable were so outrageous that Philadelphia's media that was nominally anti-Abu Jamal was critical of what Sable was doing. The two daily newspapers, the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Daily News, both wrote editorials critical of Judge Sabo's demeanor and behavior during that trial. But when it came up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, what happened? The Pennsylvania Supreme Court haughtily said, oh, the opinions of a handful of journalists do not convince us that Sabo was biased. Although they said Sabo made intemperate remarks and acted in violation of judicial decorum, now, let's look at the words. Judges' rulings are supposed to be precise in their wording. Handful means six or less of whatever you can grab in your hands. The members that were on the editorial boards of both the Daily News and the Inquirer were over a dozen people. So that's more than a handful. So we can see the shenanigans that the courts are playing with words. During that 1998 ruling, there was a justice on the case named Ron Castile. Ron Castile was the former DA of Philadelphia, who as DA worked diligently against any appeals for Abu Jamal. Justice Castile was asked to not participate in that ruling because of his role as DA and also because he received financial and campaign support historically from Philadelphia's police union, the Fraternal Order of Police, the main organization that at the time was seeking the execution of Abu Jamal. So what did Justice Castile do? In his ruling, saying that he would not recuse himself from the case as the code of conduct required, he went on to identify four other judges on the Supreme Court that had received campaign funds from the FOP, saying, why criticize me? when these other justices also received the same sort of support. So here we had five members of a seven-member court taking money and who knows what else from the main group seeking Abu Jamal's execution. I don't think in any rational world, and we live in an irrational world, that that would satisfy any tenets of fairness. That's why you have the UN brief, as well as Amnesty International, and governmental entities around the world saying that Abu Jamal's conviction violated any kind of international standards. The issue of Sabo's bias, that particular phrasing, I'm going to help them fry the N-word, that came up as an issue in appeal. One judge, a Philadelphia court judge, said, no, nah, no big deal. It was a jury trial, so whatever Sabo did, even if he was racist, didn't have an impact on it. Please stop. Just stop. Everything that Sabo did in that courtroom had an effect on what the jury would hear. And if Sabo made rulings, which he did, that kept evidence away from the jurors, they didn't have all of the information to make the ruling. When that case that just eliminated any kind of harm or violation by Sabo went to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, the judge who wrote the opinion upholding the lower court judge saying no harm, no foul with this brutal racism, as well as a bias for prosecutors, said that, hey, no big deal. And furthermore, we've already ruled on this. 
because in 98, when we said that there was no bias in 95 and 82, this is the same thing all over again. Well, it wasn't. It was different evidence, but they again whitewashed it. And I might add that the judge who issued that opinion in 2003, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice, a guy named Aiken, years later, he was forced to resign from the court because he participated in sending racist, sexist, homophobic, and anti-Islamic emails on the state computer system. And that involved other judges and members of the state attorney general's office. So you could see how deeply racism is baked into this. When we talk about racism in terms of judges in the judiciary, we see very clearly that this is a whitewash case. It's extraordinary that in all of the dozens of judges that have handled this case, only two have been African-American. One was a judge named Leon Tucker, a Philadelphia court judge. And for the first time ever in over three decades of judicial rulings on this case was the word justice used in the context of Abu Jamal when Judge Tucker uh, over, uh, overturned the case and said that Amelia was entitled to new appeals. That was brushed aside. And now we have this new evidence, six boxes of material, evidence in those materials. Those boxes of information were uh, found in the DA's office. They had been kept secret and more importantly, kept away from Abu Jamal's defense team for 36 years in violation of federal and state court rulings and local law saying that materials should be turned over promptly. So what the UN's brief found that there was abundant racism and it stated that that racism included violations of the right to a fair trial. And if you don't have that right to a fair trial, then you have all your rights violated. And that's what happened with Abu Jamal. The UN brief says confront and don't ignore the racism. And that is now what is on the table or on the bench in front of Judge Clemens, an African-American female judge. Is she going to ignore the very obvious racism or do her judicial duty to justice and find that there is racism in other violations that are very evident that you don't need to be a judge or a lawyer or a law school graduate to see? Thank you so very much. The other issue underscored by the UN brief is the Batson claim. And if you are able to win a Batson claim, your case is often thrown out entirely and you are set free or you get a new trial. And the bar for proving the Batson claim is very low. In the case of Mumia Abu Jamal, 11 out of 15 potential jurors were struck out with peremptory challenges. If our attorneys had the new evidence that emerged in late 2018 under Leon Tucker, Mumia would have gotten the Batson claim. Why? Because we found in the new evidence a piece of paper wherein the prosecutor, Joe McGill, tracks the race of each of the potential jurors. So this is the new evidence that is emerging, has emerged, and is being decided on finally on December 16th of this year. We're going to take a short station break. Stay with us. We're going to continue these voices on the case of Mamiya Abu-Jamal. Well, I wish I could share 
Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. You can subscribe for a free podcast. If you're a member of Facebook, you can look for us and friend us there. Our handle on Twitter and Instagram at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the U.S., we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and internationally to our SoundCloud listeners in Germany. We now turn our attention to the coverage of the press conference held in the case of Mamiya Abu-Jamal and the amicus brief in his case filed by the UN Working Group on People of African Descent. I would like to bring to the spotlight the Honorable Wendell Griffin, who's state court trial judge in the Sixth Judicial Circuit of Arkansas. Judge Wendell Griffin. I thank the UN for raising a challenge to the rule of law hypocrisy that characterizes so much of the judicial rhetoric that we hear concerning the Mumia Abu-Jamal case. Often we hear judges talk about following the rule of law and following precedent. But as the dissenting judge mentioned, Mumia Jamal has been denied the opportunity to gain the benefit of court precedence. The most recent example, glaring, is the fact that six boxes of evidence were discovered if you want to use that term, decades after Mamiya Jamal was arrested, charged, prosecuted, tried, convicted, sentenced to death, appealed, spent decades on death row, had his death row sentence overturned, and even decades later, fighting for justice, this evidence had not been disclosed to the defense team. When in 1963, the United States Supreme Court in the case of Brady versus Maryland held that due process of law requires that prosecutors reveal any exculpatory evidence to defense counsel and that the failure to do so, that concealment of exculpatory evidence violates fundamental fairness, what we call due process. An earlier case cited in Brady, dated 1935, said that when you have that kind of concealment, you have a pretense of a trial. In 2022, the importance of the UN amicus brief is that it calls on the American justice system and specifically Judge Lucretia Clemens 
to answer the question whether or not she will say that Mumia Jamal had a pretense of a trial, a pretense of a trial when prosecutors were allowed to engage in flagrant abuses of Batson as, but also a pretense of a trial to the extent that exculpatory evidence was knowingly concealed and kept from Jamal's defense team for decades. 2019 was when it was discovered. This is now 2022. Why would that not happen? Why, if there is a 60, almost 60 year history of court precedent since Brady versus Maryland in 1963, that says that concealing exculpatory evidence violates due process, and in Brady, a first degree murder charge was overturned. In Mooney versus Hollihan, in a California case in 1935, a First-degree murder charge was overturned, conviction overturned. And so the question is, why not Mamiya? Why not Mamiya Abu Shimon? The question might be answered this way. Perhaps our criminal, and I don't call it a criminal justice system. Let's stop using that term. It's a criminal punishment system. Its aim is not justice. Its aim is punishment. Mm-hmm. And the reason why Mamiya Abu Jamal is in prison now is because the system is geared toward punishing, not justice. And the people who are targets most and first for punishment are black, brown, and radical, liberating-minded people. Mamiya Jamal can be set free if Judge Clemens is committed to justice and not to punishment. And if she is committed to following the precedent, giving Mamiya the benefit of precedent, that existed long before 1982 when he was tried. I cited you to a 1935 case from California, 50 years before Amomir was tried. And so the relief that he is entitled to is relief that the American system of courts have recognized as entitled for people whose due process rights have been violated. As a state court trial judge who has tried murder cases and presided over murder cases, I understand the pressures that weigh on judges to defer to public opinion and especially to police opinion. However, as someone from Arkansas, the case of Moore versus Dempsey arising from the Elaine race massacre of 1919 speaks very loudly to me. In that case, five black men were tried and convicted of murder in less than 30 minutes. 
in a mob-dominated trial. And the Supreme Court of the United States overturned that conviction and held they were entitled to a new trial based upon a habeas petition brought on their behalf. Mamiya Abu Jamal is entitled to the same kind of relief. The UN Working Group says so. One of the problems of being a Black judge is having to explain to white peers, and I've been an appellate judge, they are unable to understand their own cultural incompetence and how it affects criminal punishment and justice. This is the challenge. Thank you. There's so much that just violates what is supposed to be the basic tenets of justice, and that's to have fair representation both by the defense and the prosecution to put on their case. When we look at just the issue of of Judge Sabo saying before trial that he was going to help prosecutors fry the N-word, and they weren't using the N-word, he used that word, um, that alone should have been enough to grant a new trial because that just goes to the very core of what is supposed to be sacred with the American criminal justice system. But what we see is judges and justices all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court sanctioning misconduct that they have granted other inmates relief for. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. The U.S. Supreme Court made a ruling that Mumia was not entitled to any relief when he made a statement to the court, which was called allocution. The judge, Sabo, who was biased, let the prosecutor come in and add some questions in. The irony with all of this, or one of the multiple ironies, is that months after the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Abu Jamal's conviction, it granted relief to a member of a white racist prison gang in Delaware who had escaped and killed somebody because it said that the um, prosecution had made some errors. So here the U.S. Supreme Court gave relief to a white racist prison gang member, but wouldn't give relief to Abu Jamal, where the prosecutor manipulated facts and law to imply that because Mumia was a member of the Black Panther Party, 12 years before his arrest, that that influenced him to commit this crime on the night of December 9th, or the morning of December 9th, 1981. Mumia, on his own, appeals to the Supreme Court to look at his case again. They deny it. And then months later, based on their ruling in this Delaware case involving the escaped inmate, they gave the same relief to a man in Nevada who was a member of a devil-worshipping called who killed some of his relatives. So here we have a clear example of the U.S. Supreme Court giving relief to a white racist prison gang member, current white racist prison gang member, and a current devil worshiper who was white, but denying it to a person who was a member of the Black Panther Party 12 years before he was charged. So there are so many flaws in this case, not only with the original 1982 trial, but through so many layers of court rulings by appellate courts all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. When the Third Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against Abu Jamal, the ruling itself was, you know, maybe 10 or 20 pages, uh, maybe like 10 pages, but dissent, the first dissent ever, the judge who dissented said, 
uh, who wrote like twice as much as the original opinion saying, why aren't we giving Mr. Jamal the courtesy of our precedent? Why are we changing our precedent just in this one particular case? And when we look at this case, there are repeated and just disturbing instances of courts violating their own rules to uphold uh, this particular conviction. Uh, just one quick example. Uh, there was over 20 cases where courts gave relief to persons in Philadelphia in death penalty trials because their lawyer didn't uh, provide any mitigating evidence during the trial. Mumia's attorney at the time did not. And the court said no big deal because Mumia, who was barred from the courtroom, was in charge of his defense. I mean, they come up with the most preposterous stuff. And because they said it, then it should be okay. And that's fundamentally wrong. We have a question from Kalanji Changa. Peace. Um, thanks for putting this together and providing uh, clarity and a concrete analysis. Um, first question is, um, uh, how do you see the public becoming more aware of uh, judicial collusion within uh, uh, with police misconduct? Can you repeat that again? How do you see the public becoming more aware of judicial collusion uh, with police misconduct? Um, anyone want to tackle this question? Well, it, it just depends on where you want to start. <laughs> There's so many uh, instances of this. I, I think a quick primer would be the Amnesty International um, organization. They did a report on the Abu Jamal case they came out in February of uh, the 2000. It's only 35 pages, it's a quick read. You don't have to be a lawyer to understand it. And that really lays out multiple layers, you know, trial layers, appellate court layers and everything of uh, what happened to Abu Jamal. And you can see how not only trial courts but appellate court judges um, have conscientiously uh, worked against Abu Jamal. There's one passage in there where they look at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, where the former district attorney of Philadelphia, when he went up to the and became a member of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, despite him opposing Abu Jamal's appeals as DA, he sat on the case and ruled on it. And they came to the conclusion, uh, many, many conclusions, one of which the judge who Abu Jamal's attorney said, hey, you shouldn't be sitting on this because you were Philadelphia's DA and you fought against it. One of his responses were like, was, why are you criticizing me? Because there are four other members on this court that have also received campaign funding and backing from the Philadelphia Police Union that you're criticizing me for getting court you know, funding from. So here you had five members of a seven member court in the pocket of the main group that was opposed to any kind of justice for Abu Jamal. That type of injustice would probably shock the conscience of even China and Russia, where they make no pretense of following the law. But that is not the most extraordinary example, it's just one of many in the Abu Jamal case. That's why people around the world see this as a fundamental injustice in a blot on the American judicial system. More people are doing court watching. Mm. More groups are intentionally 
watching cases and not just the so-called high profile cases. There are groups in more and more communities that are intentionally watching, monitoring how judges hold court, how judges deal with dispose of cases, and what are patterns that judges exhibit in the way they deal with cases. I think this is a good thing. I hope that it happens in more locations, but I would encourage more of us to be involved in activity because, quite frankly, what happens in these cases affects all of us. It has a bearing on all of us. While the individual defendant may be the person who is involved, Mamiya is us. Mamiya is all of us. And as goes Mamiya, so goes the issue of justice for every soul. And so the more court watchers we have, the better it will be for people like Mamiya. Thank you so very much. And that's really important for this coming court date. Julia Wright, can you say how Mumia's health is right now? In the Mumia Health Committee, our conclusion is freedom is the only treatment for elders who are comorbid, who are in prisons where food, though it's a human right, is actually poison where there's no ventilation, where it is so cold that the other day in Pennsylvania, a young man was hospitalized for hypothermia, was put back into the same cell and died. Mumia's health is that he has been, since he left hospital for double bypass surgery a year and a half ago, he has been claiming the cardiac diet prescribed to him by the surgeon who operated on him. For a year and a half, Mumia has filed these claims with the Department of Corrections. For a year and a half, Mumia, who is a jailhouse lawyer who has won so many of his fellow detainees' lawsuits has been unable to access that diet, which is recognized as a disability by the American Disability Association, especially behind bars. Prognosis, congestive heart disease. A person who suffers from that, 50% of them die within five years. But if you're in prison and you don't get access to the cardiac diet, the prognosis has to be revised accordingly. You can go to love, not fear, fear spelled with a ph.com, lovenotfear.com for instructions on how the movement is handling this matter, I would, as a professor of history, American history, but also as the um, executive producer and director of the film Justice on Trial, having done a lot of research, would like to raise the issue of um, police violence and police corruption and tampering with evidence to obtain convictions in, in all cases in Philadelphia. Um, but especially in cases 
in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Um, the entire police department in Philadelphia was investigated at different levels, at the state level, by city council, and by the Department of Justice. Um, and again, that study by the Department of Justice said that the level of homicidal violence on the part of the Philadelphia police against those arrested who were Latino and Black and the level of corruption and tampering with evidence to obtain convictions, quote, shocks the conscience. And of the 35 police officers involved in Mumia's case, approximately a third of them were convicted and jailed precisely for tampering with evidence and corruption in other cases. Jamal Jr. is on the line, and perhaps he would like to say something. We all know that corruption imbued with racism and other inequalities designed to work against non-white peoples in this country, we know that, right? You know, and that's on paper, that's on media. This is not a conspiracy case, right? This is real. This has been a real issue since this country was formed. And in the case of my grandfather, Mumia Abu Jamal, there's so many points of injustice that's been ignored by those holding the keys to my grandfather's release. Ignored because the justice system that, again, has robbed so many people of their time on, on this planet, right? It doesn't want to look itself in the mirror. You know, Mumia is innocent. And if there's going to be any reconciliation in the state of Pennsylvania, like Mumia will be a free man. This is my grandfather. You know, this man has my father's face and he's a man that's been an inspiration to so many people a world over. And he hasn't just been an inspiration because of his words, his analysis, the injustices in his case has inspired so many people, right? It made so many people put their boots to the ground. We all have a job to do. Right. And it's and it's really getting to the root of this this massive problem, you know, when it comes to the criminal injustice system, this massive problem where innocent people have to waste their entire lives behind bars because of this justice system, you know, empowered by racism and really upheld by people who are comfortable with racism or straight up racist. He's going to be free because. He is an innocent man. Much love to you all. Thank you, Jamal. And our hearts are with your family. We're out of time. Today's show produced by me, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Alicia Vargas, who did the editing of today's show. Our board up, Gary Bach. I'd also like to thank Phoebe Jones-Schellenberg, who was in the court of the case. She closely follows the case of Mamiya Abu Jamal and has visited him on several occasions. So thank you, Phoebe. I'd like to thank the speakers and organizers of press conference, as well as all the endorsing grassroots coalitions and partners. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230. Go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Thank you for listening. You all stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.